Okay, this has been a crazy few weeks in Washington. Our teachers say they used to read the news to decompress from the classroom. Not anymore. Plus, President Trump's education budget would make deep cuts to all kinds of programs. How our teachers say they and their students would be impacted. And finally, is your school full Google yet? Our teachers' schools are. They say there are advantages and anxieties about that. Those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers. The original team, the gang, is back together. You probably know them, so let's introduce them. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? I teach fourth grade. All of it. All of it. That's a running (laughs) joke, by the way. That's an inside joke. For the next three days. Princeton Grayson, what do you teach? Middle school, advanced academics, and gifted and talented. I'm glad to have you back. And Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I teach kindergarten through fifth grade at an alternative school. Great to have all three of you back. They're all public school teachers in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. To say that there's been a lot of big news coming out of Washington these days is a comical understatement. Uh, To recap, at the start of the week leading up to this taping, the Washington Post revealed that President Donald Trump had allegedly revealed highly classified information to Russian officials in the Oval Office. Then, the next day, the New York Times reported that Trump asked former FBI Director James Comey to stop an investigation into former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. White House officials paraded in front of the cameras, vehemently denying both those stories. Then, Trump spoke at the graduation of the National Coast Guard Academy and said no politician in history had ever been treated more unfairly than he had. And former former FBI Director Robert Mueller was appointed special counsel to look into Russian meddling in the election. Then a recording came out that had audio of a major Republican House leader, Representative Kevin McCarthy, apparently joking with other House leaders last year that he thought Russia had paid Trump. Then it was revealed that Trump and his transition team knew Flynn was under investigation before they hired him as national security advisor. Then it was reported Flynn as national security advisor helped scuttle military plans opposed by Turkey when it turns out he was working as a paid lobbyist for the Turkish government. Then Trump denied ever asking Comey to stop an investigation into Flynn. Then Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein told senators he knew Comey would be fired before writing a now famous memo that Trump then said was the reason he felt compelled to fire Flynn. Then it emerged that in that same notorious Oval Office meeting with Russian officials. Trump said Comey was a, quote, nut job and that firing him had eased pressure on his administration. (laughs) For those of us that you cannot see... Beyond that journalistic rage that was coming out from Mr. Palmer. Did you do that? It wasn't rage. Did you it, do that? That, that was just facts. That was amazing. Was but his breath? face got red and his head was well, bobbling around. As, that was impressive. As the New York Times wrote at some point last week, what a year this week has been. <laughs> so now none of this ostensibly has to do with education, I'll say, or schools or teaching. And, and that's actually why I bring it up. Uh, many in my profession, as Rebecca, as you just kind of alluded to, journalism are... Uh, talking a lot about how stressful the past few weeks, and this this past week in particular, has been. The relentless fire hose spigot of news, breaking alerts, big developments, leaks, unnamed sources. Every day, it seems, around 5 o'clock, Twitter explodes with some new story. But I wonder, is this just something people like me, whose job it is to keep abreast of the news and report and stay up to date, is this just something I'm feeling? Um, how do you all, as teachers, keep up with the news, and are you all feeling like I'm feeling? I do feel that same stress and just anxiety sometimes. Um, 
And so for me, I get my news mostly from social media, um, and I try to stay abreast of the headlines without digging too deep for fear of getting too anxious about it. Um, but at the same time, we're at the end of the school year, so in the same way that you're getting like this fire hose of information and things that you have to process, we are too as teachers. Um, as we're wrapping up our state test and getting kids ready for um, transitioning to the next grade level and ending out, closing out the school year with grades and such, so we're feeling a lot of that same pressure. And so I wonder, as you know, as you noted, Princeton, this time of year in schools is typically, you know, fast and furious. A lot of things going on. Does that insulate you from the chaos of the news? Chaos is a good word there. That's the, and I don't think it insulates, but I think um, our personal chaos is a good distraction. So it, it, it can allows, be an insulation of can, choice. It does. You, you can check choose. in and out. Maddie, how do you feel? Upon reflection, that's that's an insulation that I have the privilege of choosing, but I don't want that to be my choice. I think that sticking your head deep down in the sand is a really powerful habit. Like you have a feeling, well, I can stick my head down in the sand because the things going on probably won't directly impact me because of my privilege. And that's a lot of the and you're saying emotion. that because you're a white woman? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. White woman, middle class. So what's you happening know. in Washington, so you feel like? I could I could tell myself this probably won't impact me in 10 years personally. But that is, number one, incorrect. Number two, incorrect for the communities that I care about, that I'm involved in. And number three, incorrect for... I think the majority of America. So for me to like dig my head down or to watch as other people dig their heads down and then become okay with that would just make you complicit with the bad things going on. Rebecca, in the, uh, in the press, Princeton, do you also feel obligations to um, because of your job, because of of your of your duties and responsibilities as teachers? Do you feel an obligation to stay current as much as you can? I do. I think that because we're influencing the next generation and students are always having questions, especially when the news is all over the place. And so I think it's important for me. A lot of my kids get their news from social media, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. And so when we see a lot of uh, memes that start to trend or hashtags that's trending on Twitter, oftentimes it leads students to misunderstandings. Um, and and so I think I think it's important for me to stay up to date so that I can help them sift through what's real and what's not real. It's an interesting um, take on it because uh, you know and anyone who's listened to this podcast knows you're not politically inclined to agree with Donald Trump or right. the Republican Party, um, but at the same time, you you mentioned this idea of of students kind of consuming their news through memes, which are oftentimes incorrect and oftentimes right. incorrect in terms of portraying Donald Trump, um, and, and you still feel. Um, a responsibility to try to um, correct those misperceptions. I do. I think I, I definitely do. I think it's important that we have accurate information when, whenever we're coming to conclusions about an individual or about our society. And so I think it's very important that we try to be as unbiased as possible and, and to really know that when we say we don't like a person for a specific reason, that we have 
evidence to prove that. And sometimes these memes are just so far-fetched. It's oftentimes something that's misquoted. Donald Trump has said one thing and this quote says something different is what I often find. While the intent is obviously is generally accurate, it's just not the right words that was actually said. It gets back to critical thinking that we don't want kids just to hear one side of the story. And I think that it's so easy to give a very one-sided perspective on the current administration. And so for me, it's important to say, let's pull back some layers here and actually look at what's going on and have a conversation around. Now, we may still end up at the same conclusion that we started with, but it's still important that we stop and think about what we're processing and what we're consuming. And I think because of America at large, I don't feel it's doing that in a way that is moving us forward. It's important that in those places that I can do that, I push forward. Our podcast a good teacher, yeah. Princeton. I try to be. That's good teaching. <laughs> you should teach some teacher. That's good oh, teaching. That's an illusion there. Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at TFA KC. Tied in with the talk we just finished is more news from Washington um, and news that for people outside of education, at least, maybe did not make the waves that the relentless tide of news about Comey and the Russian investigation did. Uh, but for teachers is very important. The Washington Post got their hands on President Trump's proposed federal education budget in all its detail. We've known for weeks that Trump's budget would make drastic cuts to the Department of Education and put a priority on school choice initiatives. This latest news, though, gives us specific programs that will either be dramatically reduced or, in many cases, completely zeroed out. Per the Post's reporting, Trump's plan would slash federal education spending by $10.6 billion, more than $9 billion of that coming directly out of the Federal Department of Education. The proposal would entirely eliminate funding for some major initiatives, more than $1 billion for after-school programs through the 21st Century Community Learning Centers, more than $2 billion for grants that aim to reduce class size and improve classroom instruction, $15 million for a program that provides child care for low-income parents taking college classes, $27 million for arts education, $72 million for international and foreign language, $12 million for gifted and talented, $12 million for Special Olympics. 22 programs in all eliminated. The plan would shift many of these funds to so-called school choice initiatives, $500 million for charter schools, a vast expansion from the federal government's role, and $250 million for expanding and studying voucher programs. So we've known the Education Department, like many cabinet-level departments, are in the Trump administration's crosshairs. This Post report does lay out specific things that will be cut. So I first want to ask you, having read this report, digested the list of cuts, do you see any uh, things that could impact you, your school, your students directly? Rebecca. There's a message being sent here. Secretary DeVos is going to Indiana to address her former foundation, the American Federation of Children, to roll out this budget. Um, her self-appointed ethics administrator in her department now said that's no conflict. So she can go back to her former business and announce this budget, in air quotes, that is going to bring great profit to her business. Um, we have The numbers in this budget are going to bring us back to funding levels of 2002. It takes us back 15 years. We have eight and a half million more students in public schools than we did then. So right away, you're just taking the legs out of public education. Um, you're, un you're just unmooring 
all of the support systems that are in place for so many of our students. And I see you brought a list. I have a very long <laughs> list, and just of the some, ones, the the of some of the of programs the twenty two that, yeah. that are being cut. I mean, the the Title two programs for hiring and supporting teachers are are just are gone. So I don't know how you get people to be well trained to go in to service kids that need them the most. Mm-hmm. Um, the after school care, the support for neighborhoods, and just feeding these students that are coming into our buildings, that's going to be gone. Um, The college debt, the college funding supports that are there for our most at-risk students are gone. Um, The support for districts that don't get a lot of local revenue, the impact funding of if your district is in an area that doesn't get a lot of local tax tax money, our districts do. We are huge local effort districts where we live, but that's not the case in many places. So all of that support for districts that don't get local money is now gone. So So those districts are now struggling even more. We should say that it is just a proposal. There have have been many lawmakers already on both sides now that have said, you know, there's a lot of these, a lot of parts of this budget that do not look acceptable. If there is any silver lining to it at all, it will force many, many people to... Hmm be very public with their priorities. Maddie, you also have a list. What have you been thinking about as you as you kind of ran over the, the particulars of this budget plan? The one that jumped out at me was the Innovative Approaches to Literacy program jumped out at me. Um, that program supports libraries, so early literacy, buying books for schools, making sure that your school has a library media specialist in your building, free books sometimes for homes, etc. And the rationale behind why that program was looked at and to get cut was because they could use Title I funding to achieve the same goal. So Title I funding, which is you yeah. know, goes to low-income schools. Mm-hmm. You know. For reading. Yeah. It just seems kind of absurd to me because the Title I program is for um, Supporting reading for kids who are usually several years behind grade level, maybe a year or two behind grade level in their reading comprehension, um, with a Title I reading instructor and then Title I reading aides. So, like that looks like during whole group reading time, students might get pulled out, work with that Title I instructor on um, like their grade level instruction, and then get pushed back into the classroom for the purpose of getting them back onto their grade level. I just don't, like, you can't achieve that if you don't have a library. And it's expensive to buy books, and it's expensive to upkeep books, especially in, a, in an elementary school. I mean, I'm right now at the end of the year, I'm struggling to get the books to come back to school right. to get checked in. That's a problem everyone faces. So that costs money. Right now, we, I think my building has, like, $583 in outstanding book fines as of, like, last week. So there's that. There's the fact that you'd need to pay for a library media specialist. That job position is really expensive. So to, like, proposition a school and say, oh, you can just use Title I funding to plug the hole in your now bleeding library. Well, who's going to plug the hole in your reading comprehension gap? So, it's, I mean, it's the, the classic... Yeah. Taking from Peter to pay Paul scenario. And it's just absurd. Like, why why would it ever be okay to take away a library and a library media specialist and books from a school? Like, what what school would you want to send your kid to that doesn't have a functioning library? Rebecca's already mentioned there's a message being sent with this budget. Princeton... What is the message or what do you see as the intent of this budget? 
I mean, I think it, it speaks to just completely undermining public education. Like, so they, we make it very difficult for public schools to do their jobs so that we can then justify that as saying they're not doing their jobs, so that we can go privatize it. And we see that across the board with other organizations that tend to capitalize on this broken system. And I think about like charter schools, particularly here in Kansas City, where we are oversaturated with seats, but we continue to open up new schools from charter uh, open up new charter schools that only oversaturate us all the more that makes it more difficult to say that we can't uh, that public schools are not working but they have private funds that allow them to do these specialized things then they use that as justification to say well see what we're doing if you give us all of your schools then we can do that more which means that also that money will come with them and so I think that for me it just speaks to this notion of undermining public education particularly when I think about um, the Native uh, Alaskan and the Native Hawaiian funds that are being restricted and saying that... In Trump's budget, yeah. In Trump's budget. And so I feel like organizations similar to like the Teach for America, the, the National Charters, the KIPPs, and the Achievement Firsts of the World, while I don't think their intent is similar to Trump's to undermine public education, they definitely continue to capitalize off of the brokenness. And I feel like if we're really talking about reform, then we would have to actually talk about how do we solve some of the issues in public education. Well, I mean, U.S. News and World Report has reported in the last couple of months that Trump's education priorities before this budget, we should say, was was revealed that his priorities have driven a wedge in the country's charter school movement, some charter school operators praising mm-hmm. The Trump administration's proposed expansion of school choice, which is what this budget would, 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 would put a lot of money towards that priority. Other charter school leaders expressing dismay at the cuts that would affect many students and families in charter schools, especially low-income families. So, I mean, one could argue, kind of like what you're doing, Princeton, that, that Trump's priorities are, in fact, building on the work done by many prominent education reformers of the past 10 to 20 years, even if many of those education reformers politically would not agree with a lot right. of things that Donald Trump is, is putting forward in other realms. Um, do you see that as a problem, other people at the table, that this is uh, kind of building up on or just the next chapter of what has been um, an education reform movement that has at times been fairly antagonistic to public edu- public schools? I think it's it's put everybody on in, in this realm in an interesting kind of alignment because you have your public school advocates that understand the impact of what a a poorly planned or a non-transparent or unaccountable charter can do. But then you have the, air quotes again, school reform, who haven't asked for this kind of budget either. This is not Mm -hmm. their intent. This doesn't serve their agenda. Um, So now you find yourself aligned, both of us, against this crazy budget, um, this this crazy movement, you know, with the, these ideas that they have, because they, if if it's successful, it just opens the the floodgates of students that they're not in the market to get, and they don't. Let's just put it on the table. Want so now, what do they do? Well, I think well, we it have doesn't to, serve their agenda well, and you're, and you, and, as narrow as it might Princeton, be. Before you, you're referencing, yeah. um, I think some things that were included in a recent NPR report about Indiana's. Statewide mm-hmm. voucher program, That's a good example. which is the mm-hmm. the biggest state-run voucher program of any state in the country, um, serves again according to NPR, thirty-four thousand students. Research has shown that half of those students in Indiana, thirty-four thousand, half of those students had never attended a public school, and um, so opening up vouchers, opening up public money for students who have never been in the public system to subsidize their private education. I think as, as bad as that result is, I think you have to learn from that. You have to look at Milwaukee. You have to look at New Orleans. You have to look at places that have gone down these roads 
Um, and you'll see that the businesses, because it is a business, that are running those charters, they don't want this kind of flood coming their way right they now either. They don't want that they responsibility. They haven't who's perfected gonna, it. Yeah. Who's well, going to take care of the kids when the privatization of school breaks down? You go first. I, I just think that... So we, we hear this conversation around public schools and versus mm-hmm. school choice, and then we say charter schools. Charters are public schools, and so they get public funds in the same way that a traditional district school does. Well, not in the same way, but from the same pot that a traditional district school does. And so when I hear the Trump administration talking about school vouchers and school choice, they're actually referencing private schools. And so they're talking about subsidizing payments, and similar to Indiana, where Half of the people uh, who are capitalizing on that opportunity have not actually ever been in public schools themselves. And so when I think about charters versus tradition, there's a separate conversation there. And then there's like the school choice conversation, because I think what charters will realize and one, we also have to name like charters have a very small share of the public school space, a very small share of the yeah, public less school than space. What's that share? Six percent. Less than 10 percent. Yeah, the exactly. number is six. Yeah. And, six so, and so when when we try to polarize charters and traditional district schools, then we allow this conversation around uh, private schools to come in and, and, and never actually be addressed. And so we, we missed their actual point. And so I think that as we continue down this this, con- this line of conversation, that we have to recognize that charters, to, to Rebecca's point, that we're not we're not we're now starting to see more allyship there because we're recognizing, oh, wait, we get the same money they get. And if they're reducing all these federal funds, then that means we also don't get that money either. And we don't necessarily have the local support always to have um, to make ends meet. It's strange bedfellows all of a sudden. It's exactly. Just, it, but you find an ally where you can, you know, and if you want to look at it from a different lens, just a completely fiduciary mm-hmm. budget. You're now creating another school system for the taxpayer to fund. Now you've got two school systems you're running, you know, and that. But which which school system is directly accountable to the federal government? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Because this budget allows states to disengage. Well, but then the part that the conversation that which is supposed to be like this underlying thought with school choice is that school choice equals better outcomes for kids. My question will then become for which kids? Because when we see that when we when we see minority students participating in the school choice options, I haven't seen a lot of data that supports or that has said that their academic and long term trajectories have been any significantly better than where they would have been right. if they. Yeah, I mean, you haven't Re- seen it because it's not there. Rebecca, exactly. there's no, it's not there. Rebecca referenced Milwaukee's program, right. one of the, I mean, the longest running voucher initiative in the country. Results have been at best mixed. Links to uh, some of the stories we've talked about in this section, uh, the Washington Post reporting on Trump's education budget, NPR's reporting on Indiana's state-run, statewide voucher program. You can find those at our website. Recently, the New York Times ran a fascinating story about how Google has come to dominate public education in the United States. More than half of all primary and secondary students in America use some Google app for schoolwork, Gmail, Google Docs, Google Classroom. In turn, Google's Chromebook which is essentially just a stripped-down device that can only run Google Apps, account for half of all mobile devices shipped to schools, and that's mainly because of their affordability. They're about, they're about 100 bucks a pop. Many schools are going full Google, that is, one-to-one with Chromebooks, with nearly all student work done through Google Apps, papers written on Google Docs, presentations given through Google PowerPoint, students turning in homework in Google Classroom, collaborating and answering questions on Google Chat, 
As one teacher in the article in the New York Times put it, Google is now a fact of life in schools. A few years ago, Google in schools was more of a cutting-edge innovation than just simply the way things were done. But even then, people were raising questions. An NPR report from 2014 quoted educators worried about going full Google. They were asking questions about student privacy. They brought up fears of how easy it was to plagiarize on Google Docs. They questioned Google, one of the world's biggest corporations, and its motivations for wanting to get into schools and have students use its products exclusively. There are deeper, more existential concerns, too. The latest New York Times story that I just referenced said the Googleification of education is changing public education philosophically. The extensive and intrinsic use of Google in schools is, quote, prioritizing training children in skills like teamwork and problem solving while de-emphasizing the teaching of traditional academic knowledge like math formulas, all with the help of Google. As Facebook has changed how people communicate with others, the article seems to suggest Google could very well change how children learn. So my teachers at the table, are your schools full Google? We are full Google. We are. We have been absorbed into that Borg. And we are of one one hive mind. Resistance is futile. It is futile. And it is the reality which we all live. So we need to train the small ones to be a part of it. And Princeton Um, and Maddie, you guys are full Google as well? Yeah. Our school. We're not quite full Google, but we're going that direction. So Half Google. Right. We <laughs> our high schools are full Google. Our middle schools will be next year and of part of our elementaries will be as well. No. Uh, back to what you were saying there, Rebecca. I was I was gonna say and I and I'm and I'm saying that with laughter in that it's it's such a two pronged you know, movement and I'm gonna as the old person at the table again, I'm in the role. We're moving out of the conversation in education from access where we had we felt great energy to give the the students this thing so they would have access because it was going to be the next great movement in education. So now we're moving from access into success. How do we use that successfully? How do we make that a part of learning instructionally? Uh, so Google. But it's it's that kind of it's interesting to see long lens the progression. This yeah. is how education is changing. It is short, but short short term philosophically existentially like Kyle said it's a fundamental shift on what becomes curriculum what becomes consumer. Does that bother some I mean a googleified classroom in the in the main positive or negative so far? I don't know. I'm 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 a skeptic when it comes to just technology in the classroom. I think it's it's a talking point that sounds good, but we haven't actually done an effective job of implementation in the classroom. So we do, we hear a lot in education around no worksheets, no worksheets. And then we take that same worksheet that we would have printed off and we put it on a computer or a website, a PDF and say, oh, they're using, now (laughs) they're using technology. It's like, but no, they're not. And so I just feel like that's, that's been the current trend that we say because we put a device in front of a kid that we're doing our jobs better. And that's not always the case. Now, at the same time, there are some significant benefits to uh, digitizing a classroom and using digital resources. Um, we can definitely be more personal with our educational system and, and differentiating for students. Yet, I haven't seen technology move in a direction where we're actually doing that effectively. Yeah, Maddie, what are your thoughts? I feel like there's a lot of work to be done in my classroom, but overall, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about the one-to-one Chromebooks in my classroom. I don't know. I mean, I only go back three years on my district timeline, so for me, it's it's always been there. But and then it, um, I mean, there have been. Let's then if be, the old woman could let's be clear, again. there have been computers yeah. before Chromebooks. Yeah. Let me yeah. wait <laughs> and say no, but the what happened? Well, we got one to one. Our first one to one was Chromebooks, right, so right. We, the Chromebooks weren't replacing an older model. Yeah. Um, we got one to one with students through mm-hmm. a grant. 
which kind of leads back to, you know, is Google trying to be the big brother of the education world? But we got a grant through Google to get those one-to-one Chromebooks for our students. And since that's happened, we've been... um, I, mean, I look at Google digital like citizenship. The, the I teach like the hour Pearson. of code. I don't. I don't, know, I I don't like... know that the digital Pearson metaphor holds up though. Because well, because Pearson very Pearson. much has a monopoly on textbooks, textbooks. And, right. and resources. Right. So does Google but when it comes when, to technology. But when our students leave us, mm-hmm. they're in a Pearson-free world. When our oh, students touche. when our students leave us, mm-hmm. they're in a Google world. Do you feel and like I have an obligation? You're right. To have them use that intelligently. And you, they're encouraged to take their well, school Google profile and convert it to a regular. So this is an interesting point that I wanted to bring up, right? Google so, profile. Rebecca, Maddie, what you're talking about. Um, do you feel like you are kind of doing the work of Google in creating Google consumers, Google customers, by mm. having Probably. having them sign up for in, a, a school-based Gmail account, having them use Google Docs, having them be, in they become In my day-to-day well- management delivery no i'm not thinking those things stepping back looking big picture absolutely is that a problem absolutely um i i don't know that i'm prepared to say it is a problem because again i go back to that's the reality we're living in so i have to prepare my kids to be successful for what happens after me so they need those skills Mm -hmm. but i'm also obligated to teach them the digital citizenship, the real versus fake, the objective um, filtering of what they're doing. So I have to get that in there as well. You know, we're still developing as a profession the curriculum pieces, the instructional pieces. So we're at a strange midpoint. I guess because we're know. not using it correctly yet. We know we're not using it correctly yet, but we haven't found that answer. Thinking more about this notion that when our kids leave us, they're in a Google world. I mean, obviously, Google does dominate a lot of our spaces, but it makes me think about the, like the MySpace versus the Facebook. Like, if we would have thought that we were always in a MySpace world and that's all we ever showed our kids was MySpace, there would never have been a Facebook. And so I feel like we do have some obligation to introduce them to like some counterculture, if you will, around right. what is possible. If we always think about Google, 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 then they're going to think, well, how can I work for Google, not well, how can I be the next Google? How do, your, how do your students... That's great. How do your students conceptualize Google? Like, what do they see it as? Google Drive, Google Apps. I think they, they think it's Chrome. a search engine. Search. Yeah. How do, that's how Answers. I find an answer. I feel like we are all kind of... It appears as if we're all in agreement that Google is like a semi to pretty um, confirmed, like, big brother of education, but I don't know, like, is that a... I'm struggling with it. Is that a bad thing? Or like the money I think it's of- always bad when some when one company monopolizes an entire yeah. field. And uh, and Google is right. has done that. And mining student data as early as when they're I mean, they're in second grade with Google Chromebooks. Well that's a, that's another problem that was raised in the New York Times article that we haven't touched upon yet. Yeah, so I mean that that that's disturbing, you know, because they're like they're six eight years old and they're doing google searches and then if they convert their profile over to non my district domain to regular domain google profiles like well and that speaks all that data is i would i would label that as disturbing well and it speaks to the fact that if they if they start using google as six or seven year olds in your classroom by the time they're 14 15 year olds they will have a consumer profile built up for Google mm-hmm. and any other totally. advertiser who wants to capture and them. And they love it. I mean, they, they teachers use that all the time as incentives. Like, oh, you did this, this, and this. You get 10 minutes of free Chromebook time. 
you know, and then what do they do with that? They Google image search, they save images, they meme search, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where's my dividend from Google? <laughs> True. Mm. You, should, you should get a dividend. All teachers now. Is a public All district. That should be part of our funding out. stream. <laughs> Don't rule that out. Where's uh, my bonus? Well, that New York Times article about the so-called Googleification of education, you can find a link to that on our website. Well, we end each episode with a segment we call Kids These Days. Our teachers tell us about the things trending among their students over the past week. It's a window into the sometimes strange world of teachers. So each week we ask, what are your kids into these days? And we're coming down. All three of you will be ending school this coming week. You will be out for summer break this coming week. Rebecca, it's the end of the school year. What are your kids into these days? It's the end of the school year. 175 days later... We are at a different place with our folks than we were. Um, It's kind of a double-edged sword, and I'll just put it out there. I don't want to be on a downer, but it's a really anxious time for students. Mm. Teachers, too, just because of the adult anxiety issues. But it's a time of great anxiety for students um, because the routine changes, their security is gone. um, The kids that don't know where their meals are coming from. Um, that it can be very upsetting. So it becomes an, an emotional time. Um, we've been doing a lot of dancing. We've been doing a lot of art. We've been doing a lot of big motor stuff um, just to keep everybody engaged and safe. Um, so I know Mr. Primer is going to tell us to be nice to your teachers, but everybody be <laughs> nice to your kids and be nice to your teachers. It's a, it's a stressful time as much as it's a time of celebration. Um, and they will be very pleased to see Ms. McIntosh go for a few weeks so they're into you leaving they, they are they are glad i am done and vice versa princeton what are your kids into these days um my kids are into yearbooks right now can you sign my yearbook and what are you doing for the summer are the two most frequent things that i'm getting right now um we're in celebration mode we've finished out the school year they're done on friday so they're excited eighth graders eighth graders preparing for their eighth grade promotion seventh graders are preparing for the summer and being eighth graders and all the craziness that comes with that some are preparing, preparing for summer school. Um, and, yeah, so we're just ready to close out the school year. What are the, uh, what are the trends in yearbook signing this year that you're noticing? Nothing really new. <laughs> Arrog- so. Arrogant quotes, quotes. The quotes in yearbooks are always hilarious. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have seen a lot of trending uh, quotes from just, like, senior yearbooks where they, like, take the picture and, like, put their final quote in the yearbook. Those have been pretty interesting. But for my kids signing, nothing really special. A lot of I see a lot more Twitter handles now. Like, oh, your kids uh, check out my Instagram. Yeah. Check out my, uh, my <laughs> add me on. Uh, Google consumers. Yeah, so. yeah. Everyone's a walking personal brand now. Yeah, yeah. Even when they're in eighth grade. All right, Maddie, close us out. What are your kids into these days? We are still into our chant from field day, which was really fun. We well, had we had field day on Friday, and um, I thought all the teachers were going to do chants, and we were the only <laughs> class that did chants. <laughs> Yay for Miss oh, Perkinper's class. I loved it. I'm very competitive, so I was like, we are going to have a chant. We're going to have fun. And we're going to follow the rules the first time and look awesome. And the kids were like, yeah. And we took field day by storm. Can you give us a taste? Yeah, well I was going to say, you know. It was, it's a, yes. like a very classic, like, summer camp champ. Well, that you're going to have to do stole. it. <laughs> okay, okay. It's a repeat after me. So you can. We'll, we'll repeat after I'm there you. For Are you yeah. really? Yeah. I'm there for yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. Let Every, her rip, Tim Everyone's chip. going to know it. It's very obvious. 
It's a everywhere we go. Everywhere, everywhere we, we go. go. People want to know. People want to know. Who we are. Who we are. So we tell them. So we tell them. We are Team Burkemper. We are Team Burkemper. Mighty, mighty Burkemper. Mighty, mighty Burkemper. And then we would like to remember the Titans to go, ooh, feel good. Except for I taught it to... A boy and a girl, and then they walked in the front of our line, and they led the chant. Oh. Down. It sounds like it went well. You yeah. really needed to be it's there a, to yeah. get it. It's, it's a strange ritual, but they all do it. You know, what my kids are into, though, I'm into. That's all that counts. You're a good yeah. teacher. It was fun. Well, <laughs> that is a, good that's a good note to end on. Uh, that will do it for this episode of No Wrong Answers. Makes me want to go out and do field day now. I wish adults had field day. We have one come well, mm. my middle school, but you don't want to. Wait, wait <laughs> for that feeling to pass. Yeah. It's, a, it's a hostage situation. <laughs> uh, we should say Teach for America Kansas City is the underwriter of this podcast. No Wrong Answers does retain total editorial control. What our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. We will have our weekly extra credit segment drop on Thursdays. Look for that in your feed. You can like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts. It's no longer iTunes. It's Apple Podcasts. So find us there Whoa. or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours. Giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Thanks to our teachers this week, Maddie Burkemper. Go team. <laughs> Go team. <laughs> Princeton Grayson and Rebecca McIntosh. I wish you all the best for your final weeks of school. You're going to, by the time I see you again in the future, you will be off for the summer. Yes. And there will be a next time. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. I'm Kyle Palmer. And remember, kids, especially this time of year, be nice to your teachers. teachers. <laughs>